Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. I read a book a while back called The Lone Star Constitution. It told the story of constitutional development from the perspective of Texas. Texas has been front and center in a lot of important constitutional litigation. But I remember thinking as I read it, so is Missouri. One case in point is Missouri versus Holland from 1920 about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. We've just finished a series of episodes on the separation of government powers, specifically when and how the Supreme Court has been involved in policing the boundaries between the institutions of the federal government. We're going to spend the next few episodes talking about foreign affairs and the Constitution, beginning today with the treaty power. The case of Missouri versus Holland starts when the U.S. game warden Ray Holland arrests the Missouri Attorney General Frank McAllister for hunting ducks in the spring when they're out of season. McAllister loved the spring hunt, and he wasn't about to stop on account of some federal law. The warden caught McAllister and four friends out near Nevada, Missouri, with a bag of 76 ducks. McAllister then apparently made things worse by giving Holland a fake name, which I'm sure didn't help his case. For violating the law against spring duck hunting, McAllister and his friends were then prosecuted and fined. But McAllister turned around and asked a federal court to enjoin enforcement of the federal law, arguing that it was unconstitutional. And working through the arguments from this case about state and federal authority to regulate migratory birds brings us to the treaty power and requires that we revisit some pretty foundational constitutional issues. The constitutional question is this. Can Congress do through a treaty with another country what it would not have the authority to do without that treaty? And here's some relevant history for the case. In 1913, Congress passed a statute called the Migratory Bird Act, which established national regulations for hunting ducks and other migratory birds in the United States. The argument in favor of the act was that regulations for migratory bird hunting needed to be done nationally rather than state by state, and we had to do this to protect the bird population. The bird population then had an effect on all sorts of things, including national agriculture. But two federal district court judges, one in Kansas and one in Arkansas, declared the act unconstitutional. Why would it be unconstitutional? Well, recall Article 1, Section 1. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. And what are those powers herein granted? Most of them are listed in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Congress can lay and collect taxes, borrow money, regulate commerce, write laws about immigration and bankruptcy, coin money, punish counterfeiting, establish post offices and post roads, secure patents, create federal courts, declare war, raise armies, maintain a navy, regulate the military, call up the state militias, write laws for Washington, D.C., and make any other laws that are necessary and proper to carrying out one of those listed powers, and also any other power that's vested in the government of the United States. The logic of all of this is then reiterated in the Tenth Amendment, ratified in 1791. Tenth Amendment holds that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. There's no enumerated power to regulate migratory birds, so the federal district court judges in Kansas and Arkansas concluded that this was one of those powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, and so still reserved to the states respectively which meant that the people in Kansas and Arkansas and Missouri could have a spring duck hunt if they wanted a spring duck hunt. 
Following up on that 1913 act, then, Congress took a different tack. One of the powers of the president in Article 2, Section 2, is to make treaties by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. And Article 6 of the Constitution then says that treaties are the, quote, supreme law of the land, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. And if you combine that with the necessary and proper clause, you get this constitutional argument. First, the president can make a treaty with the advice and consent of the Senate. Next, that treaty is the supreme law of the land. Finally, Congress has an enumerated power in Article 1, Section 8 to make laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution both its enumerated powers and any other power vested in any other part of the federal government. And the conclusion is then that Congress can write a law enforcing a treaty. And you can probably guess where this is headed. A few years later, the United States enters into a treaty with Great Britain, who is still sovereign in some technical sense over our loyalist neighbors to the north. And the treaty protects birds that migrate between the United States and Canada. Woodrow Wilson then signs the Migratory Bird Treaty in 1918, and Congress soon passes the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, implementing the treaty by statute. The act makes it a crime to kill or capture migratory birds except as permitted by federal regulations that are then made by the Secretary of Agriculture. That statute's still in the books. It's one of the oldest wildlife protection laws in the United States. It's why you can't hunt ducks in the spring, and it's why you have to have a federal duck stamp before you go out in the fall. And today we have additional treaties with Mexico, Russia, and Japan that create regulatory frameworks to protect other species of birds. This is how many of our wildlife protection laws have been written. When Missouri Attorney General Frank McAllister and his buddies are prosecuted for their spring duck hunt then, the federal regulation that they violated was put in place under the authority of this migratory bird treaty between the United States and Great Britain. Assuming for the sake of argument that those federal courts in Kansas and Arkansas were right in 1913 that Congress had no constitutional authority to pass national legislation regulating hunting within the boundaries of a state, did the Treaty of 1918 change that? Did it now mean it was constitutional to pass the same statute that wouldn't have been constitutional before? May Congress pass a law with a treaty that it may not pass without it? And if so, what are the constitutional limits on the treaty power? Surely Congress can't just do anything at once because it has a treaty in place. Those are the questions the court takes up in Missouri v. Holland. In a majority opinion written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, the court concludes that, quote, If the treaty power is valid, there can be no dispute about the validity of the statute under Article 1, Section 8 as a necessary and proper means to execute the powers of the government. Since this just is one of the powers delegated by the Constitution to the national government, the Tenth Amendment doesn't help the state of Missouri's argument here. Holmes, though, acknowledged the problem of limits. As he said, we don't mean to imply that there are no qualifications to the treaty-making power, but they must be ascertained in a different way. And that different way was a little murky. He said we have to consider the case in light of our whole experience and not merely in that of what it was a hundred years ago. The treaty in question does not contravene any prohibitory words to be found in the Constitution, Holmes wrote. The only question is whether it is forbidden by some invisible radiation from the general terms of the Tenth Amendment. We must consider what this country has become in deciding what that amendment has reserved. Having read that, I'm not sure it's obvious what the limits are on the treaty-making power. But we might be able to suggest a few things from Justice Holmes's opinion. First, a treaty can't contravene something that's prohibited by the Constitution. So no treaties suspending habeas corpus in peacetime or quartering troops in people's homes or depriving states of equal representation in the Senate. Beyond that, there might be some kind of Tenth Amendment limit to the treaty-making power if there's something that has been and continues to be a matter of purely local concern with no national significance. 
but this would be understood in light of modern circumstances and not just what has traditionally been considered to be within the purview of the states. You can imagine all sorts of issues that could come up along these lines. What if we had a treaty about crime and then passed a national criminal code? Or a treaty about the rights of children and then passed a uniform national family law? These are things traditionally within the purview of the states, but not specifically prohibited by anything in the Constitution. Would that violate the Constitution or the Tenth Amendment? A similar kind of case just came up to the Supreme Court in 2014. It involved a woman named Carol Bond. Her best friend became pregnant, and the father, it turned out, was Carol Bond's husband. She wasn't happy about it, so she put arsenic and potassium dichromate on her best friend's doorknob, car, and mailbox. But other than a chemical burn on her hand, which she treated by rinsing with water, the friend turned out to be just fine. As Justice Scalia put it in his concurring opinion, somewhere in Norristown, Pennsylvania, a husband's paramour suffered a minor thumb burn at the hands of a betrayed wife. But Carol Bond was caught and convicted of a federal crime that prohibits the possession of chemical weapons. And that federal statute was passed in pursuance of the Convention of the Prohibition of the Development, Production, Stockpiling, and Use of Chemical Weapons, an international treaty entered into by the President with the advice and consent of the Senate. The Supreme Court treated this as a statutory issue and avoided the constitutional question in the case. They held that the statute was never intended to apply to a situation like Carroll's. States have traditionally exercised the power to punish local crimes, like the assault that took place in this case, according to the court, and we can presume that Congress didn't mean for the ban on chemical weapons to apply to these kinds of circumstances. So there could have been a direct challenge to Missouri versus Holland in this case, but there wasn't. They avoided that question altogether, the question of Congress's authority to enact this legislation under the treaty in the first place. One justice, at least, though, wished there would have been some kind of direct challenge to Missouri versus Holland. Justice Thomas and his concurrence seemed ready to take on the limits to the treaty-making power and to re-engage the Missouri versus Holland case. As he wrote, to interpret the treaty powers extending to every conceivable domestic subject matter, even matters without any nexus to foreign relations, would destroy the basic constitutional distinction between domestic and foreign powers. Interpreting the Constitution this way, Thomas said, would leave a gaping hole in our constitutional structures. And for that reason, Thomas argued that the treaty power can be used to arrange intercourse with other nations, but not to regulate purely domestic affairs. And this division between domestic and foreign affairs brings up an important question that we'll take up next. How does the Constitution allocate authority between Congress and the president when it comes to foreign affairs? Not just treaties, but foreign relations generally, and all the different ways the United States exercises power in the international arena.